I found this article about the 50 worst websites in 2019. Would it surprise you that the Yale University School of Art is right at the top? See, I think they've overthought this, right? Like it's the School of Art. It has to be bad to be good or something like, you know, they've got to be so different or it's, you know, they're not doing their job. Maybe they're deliberately designing bad websites as an ironic statement of society. Or the 007 Museum. You're telling me that there's not somebody that will pay money or sponsors to have a better website for 007? In the very least, can't they make like a Bentley supercar that converts into a mobile optimized website? Where's Q when you need him? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome, welcome, welcome to episode number 149 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith, joined each and every time, I think, yeah, each and every time by Chris Boyer. I don't think we've ever done one that we haven't both been here. That's true. Yeah. Welcome, Reed. Podcasting today under a blanket of snow. There's freshly fallen snow. It really feels like the holiday season here. I'm wearing short sleeves. (laughs) You always say that. (laughs) (laughs) But I really am. I think it's supposed to be, uh, I think it's going to get to like 60 today. And there's your weather report. We've heard that actually from several people that they really enjoy the weather report. So maybe we'll make it a more succinct uh, segment of the show. A digital weather report or yeah, of some sort. exactly. <laughs> or we'll put it on the website or something. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for spreading the word. Uh, we certainly appreciate all the support. We've been getting great feedback through our end of year voting survey, if you will. Uh, if you have not seen that, it is online. We'll mention it again here at the end of the show. But it's a bit.ly link, Touchpoint 2019. And you can go out there and tell us which episode you thought was best and all that kind of good stuff. Because we've got all of that coming up here in just a few episodes, which we'll get into uh, a little bit later in the show and what to expect. Because next uh, next week is 150. Before we do that, if you would go out to the website, speaking of touchpoint.health, rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you happen to be listening and uh, sign up for the TPS report. You'll find it there on the website. It's a weekly email. I think we're like 77 editions in. So that's been going for a while, and the audience is uh, growing every week. So good information there, aggregated news from around the industry. I think we've got kind of a neat show lined up for today, but before we jump into that, let's uh, take a brief pause, and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Recently, Reed, I gave a presentation at the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network Annual Conference, and I remember you were there. It was called Putting Customers at the Center of Your Digital Strategy. And in the middle of that presentation, I actually talked about really understanding your customers better using a a tool or a technique called empathy mapping. I thought it would be good for us to maybe get into that a little bit because I've had a number of questions since that presentation about what exactly that is. How do they do that? So have you ever done that empathy mapping? I don't think I'd ever even heard of it until your presentation. I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, that's neither here nor there because uh, we're going to talk about it today. (laughs) And uh, we will start out over on Wikipedia, the trusted source of, well, everything, I guess. And the definition for empathy design, I guess, is a user-centered design approach that pays attention to the user's feelings towards a product. I think that's the important part, the user's feelings towards a product. The empathetic design process is sometimes mistakenly referred to as empathetic design. (laughs) Which is a little bit different if you're empathetic versus empathic. Empathic versus empathetic. Maybe we'll do a show on empathetic design as well. Today we're not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the foundation of empathic design is observation and the goal to identify latent customer needs in order to create solutions that customers have difficulty envisioning because they're not familiar with what that product should be. I mean, it it tries to address that age-old question of, if you ask your customer what they want, but they're not aware of what it could be, empathy design really tries to get into that mindset. That's an interesting nuance, I guess. It kind of goes on to talk a little bit about that this particular kind of design process, I guess, relies on observations of the consumers as opposed to, you know, like traditional market research, which relies on the customer consumer's inquiry with the intention to avoid a possible bias in surveys, questions, et cetera. We, I guess, typically focus groups, whatever you want to call it, that's more of a, you know, market research mechanism, I guess. But, you know, often what happens in in those focus groups, you ask questions that the consumer would answer for, you know, like, for example, you would say, would you select a doctor that's equal in, in every other factor, it's equal to the doctor you currently have, if they're closer to your home or your work? And what you're doing is you're actually setting up that premise for them who would not compel to answer that question, how they feel they should answer that question. Or, you know, if you could get orthopedic surgery for cheaper in the next city over, would you go there? I mean, those are kind of loaded questions. And that that's a lot of kind of the risks or the fallacies of that traditional market research. I'm not trying to put down market research. I mean, they're very sophisticated in what they do, but there are some inherent biases that, are, that occur. Empathic design really relies on that observation of things that they're not telling you. So how do you do that? That's it. So that it's not quite as check the box, yes, no. Again, because with the leading questions like all things being equal, would you pick the closer one? Well, yeah, I guess. To then come back and say proximity or convenience is the number one factor, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's like, well, I mean, I guess, but things are not always equal. That's exactly right. 
I'm reminded of one of the very famous cases of where there's kind of a fallacy around that. Do you remember the Pepsi challenge? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Where they had like a disguised can of Coke and a disguised can of Pepsi, and they would have people blindly taste test it and say they like this and they like that. The intention there was to kind of shift the consumer perception that which product was better, which who was doing that test. Do you remember? Was it Coke or Pepsi? It was uh, Pepsi. It was Pepsi, mm-hmm. right? Because they were the right. number two factor. And what they found is that people chose kind of indiscriminately, right? That Pepsi and Coke uh, was kind of a 50-50 split. But did that shift consumer purchasing patterns? No, Pepsi is still the number two soda that's out there because of feelings, because of people ha- what they feel about their brand. And so empathic design and even furthermore, empathy mapping is designed to get into that mindset and to really help uh, understand sort of the feelings that people are bringing to the experience, not just what they say they're going to do. I'm really more of a Coke guy. I think I could have chosen. <laughs> but even if if it's 50-50, then it's like, okay, super. Well, then I'll just stick with what I've got. Like, what's the selling point there? Like, exactly. it, it's, the dumb, it's the dumbest experiment ever. But anyway. Exactly. Well, so let's get into a little bit about empathy mapping, because that really is the tool in the toolkit of a user-centered design person or a UX UI person to try to map into understanding the the empathy of the users of a product or a service. I found an article called Empathy Maps, a step-by-step guide for better digital experiences. And it's on the user testing blog, which is, by the way, a Mm. really good site, usertesting.com. And they actually kind of go through a step-by-step guide of what empathy maps actually are. And they start off with a definition from the Nielsen Norman Group, which are very strong usability people, Mm -hmm. right? And NG, they've been around forever. They say an empathy map is a collaborative visualization used to articulate what we know about a particular type of user in order to, one, create a shared understanding of their needs, and two, aid in decision-making when you're designing a product. It's a very specific use case. You know, and I, I think what's interesting is the second part of that definition, certainly to understand the, the, the needs of the user, but it's to aid in decision-making. There's actually a really simple graphic. Do you want to describe it? Four quadrants. And if you start in the bottom left quadrant that it's due, bottom right is feel, top right, think, top left, say. Um, so going kind of counterclockwise there. In a UX project or a UX design project, when you're talking with customers or potential customers of your product or your service, they say you just get a bunch of post-it notes, kind of have this simple quadrant, and they instruct you in a very kind of, it seems a very simplistic way, but it could get very nuanced if you haven't done this before, about how you capture feedback from customers into this quadrant. So let's go through each segment a little bit differently. You mentioned um, in the lower lower left, it starts with do. That quadrant focuses on how users experience the app, the website, because that's typically where you're doing this in like app or website design. You might notice how many times they attempt to log in, or they may say, I can never remember my password. There's a lot of different ways that people can articulate what they're doing. A lot of times, too, in a very passive way, you can dig into analytics and see how people are actually what they're doing when they're on your website. That gives you a, an ability to really test out what the do quadrant actually uh, is articulating. 
I'm actually going to reverse course here and kind of go so we can end with uh, feel, but I'm, I'm going to go clockwise to the top left, uh, the say qu- uh, quadrant. And this is where you want to capture feedback. Uh, like, I, you know, I don't like that color or image or, you know, whatever it is. And they say this is, uh, you know, a consideration uh, to maybe park feedback and tidbits from the users, just kind of stream of consciousness as you uh, observe them. So not everything has to go there, uh, but if you think it's interesting, you know, you can you can put it in the in the say quadrant. So that's typically market research, right? You ask them questions and they say things, or they may not be prompted to say things. So you have aided prompts and unaided prompts. And those are what you want to capture in this quadrant for sure. Then if you go over right next to that is the think. Now, the think is a little bit harder because it reveals users' belief and logic in how they approach that experience. For example, if one tester has security concerns and says they don't want to shop on mobile because they're afraid that the credit card will get hacked, or they say, I don't want to fill out this online appointment form for a doctor because I'm afraid that I'll get lost in the shuffle. I don't trust it. This is where you capture things. Like you could say, okay, one of the think uh, feedback is security issues for mobile patients. Or another one might be concerned about uh, completion of online appointment scheduling tools or what have you. So you want to capture those in that quadrant. Thinking is a little bit more nuanced because you really want to get into the rationale of them making decisions. But this is really the quadrant where you stick them. A lot of perceptions, I guess, kind of fall in there. Not that they don't fall in some of the say uh, or don't fuel even even do, but I think it, it is kind of that nuance of you know why they're thinking a certain way or doing certain things. Uh, the final quadrant, bottom right, uh, feel. They talk about this is where the real listening happens and, and the magic unfolds, as they put it, for designing you know that remarkable experience. So your goal is to read between the lines a little bit, kind of understand or even empathize with how their emotions fluctuate throughout your time. If something surprises them or there's uh, uh, some sort of utility that's you know remarkable, if you will, now you can kind of start digging in, right? You're listening for a lot of feedback from them. You know, the, the, the example they have in here is is based on an app. Like, you know, oh, wow, it only takes, you know, one click or, oh, I can check out really easy by doing this or something. You know, the, the, you're, you're listening to that, that feedback or, oh, this is really cool or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, we recently were doing some wireframe designs, actually IA design, user testing for a new website. And one of the things that as people were starting to go through it, we very simplify the the navigation, the IA, we had a number of people provide feedback that says, oh, wow, this this is actually really easy to find this information. Or, oh, it gives me the ability to search conditions, treatments, and locations for service all in once. That's kind of cool. That's a feeling moment, right? And by the way, uh, we're mentioning positive feeling moments, but there is also a lot of negative feelings that you can capture too. I, I did another usability study a couple of years ago on a website, and the task was to find a phone number for a hospital, and they couldn't find it. They navigated through seven different clicks. They finally got to the hospital location page, and there was no phone number published on that page. They were just like, arg, you know, they said it really loud and frustrating. That's a feeling. Yeah. You know, that's where you want to capture it. 
Because I mean, I've seen that similarly around things like bill pay or you know some sort of utility that is useful, and, and people are trying to find it, you know, providing some sort of frustration. Just last night, friends of I we were commiserating over how unusable the uh, Minnesota parking app is because <laughs> when your time lapses, you can't just renew it. And you know, we thought oh, that should be simple. That's a feeling thing. So the say, think, do, feel. Those are the four pieces of sort of empathy uh, mapping that you do. Now, this typically happens in the construct of some kind of usability testing. It's not to say that, you know, every market research project that you do or every focus group that you do or every usability testing you do, you can also do empathy mapping on top of it. You have to really structure your programs or your your, your testing so that you can capture that. And you have to have that mindset of this, this is what we're trying to capture and dedicate people to that. So after the break, Reed, let's come back and let's talk about how you can use empathy mapping and, and, and in fact, empathy marketing in a way to help understand your customers. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Now that you know what it is, let's talk about how you do it better. Um, you found a, uh, a great article over on Content Strategist or Contently.com. They've got a couple of insights here, and actually, we're going to go through uh, exactly that 10 ways and tips, I guess, to, to make it better. It's really important to understand your customer and the challenges they face when it's related to marketing, to branding. And we're going to hear that later in the interview, how important that is. But the challenge is, is that we don't typically do it well. I mean, take aside all the UX, UI people. That's what their job is. Uh, in general, marketers don't do that. Content Marketing Institute's put out a report this uh, in 2019, and it said just 42% of marketers talk to their customers or their clients as part of their research. Yeah. And don't get caught up on, you know, Chris said that, you know, uh, that we're not doing this well. Uh, this is not healthcare. Like this is marketers in general, which you would think we like to just use healthcare as an excuse or a crutch sometimes, but this is just marketing in general. They talk about the fact that data really is important, should play a role. I mean, we've talked a lot about that uh, historically on the show, about how that should be part of your decision-making process. There really is no substitute for the nuances you can get from these types of conversations and the insights and things like that. So the author was is actually a marketer themselves, referred to a field guide for customer empathy that was created by a company called Moves the Needle. They link to it actually in this blog post. So definitely check it out. We'll add the link to the show notes. The field guide is actually more in-depth. It actually helps you structure questions. But what we're going to do is we're going to capture uh, 10 tips here and just kind of go through them and just let's reflect, read on, have we done this before? What, you know, what might be some of the challenges? So the first one is... Start with a problem you suspect is affecting your customer. So go into it with a specific purpose. 
We want to use that to guide the interview questions, right? You don't just don't show up and say, what do you generally feel about our <laughs> brand, et cetera? Well, I mean, yeah, you, can. you can. That's a different it's type pretty, of study. pretty broad. You know, you want to do some kind of guided focus. And I think that's a really, really important thing to say, particularly if you, you want to focus in on what's affecting your customer, you suspect, in either a positive or negative way. Second, second tip here is to talk to one person at a time. I think this is a really interesting point. I know sometimes it's probably easier. Well, I guess it may be easier to talk to some people in a group, at least at times, but you're going to get kind of some biased answers. Maybe, you know, everybody kind of merges into, unless you have a really strong personality, everybody's going to kind of merge into like, yeah, 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 that that's, yeah, that that's right. That's what I think too. And so if you can talk to one person at a time, I think you'll get more granularity and, and insights into to realistically what people are thinking, you know, much like you would do a survey online. I think it's important here, too. It isn't really explicitly stated. But when you're talking to that one person, try not to make it feel like you're like they're being interrogated. You know, don't put a shiny light on them and have four people standing around taking notes of everything they say. You want to try to make it a very natural setting when you're talking to that person. Obviously, you need to listen to observe, which kind of leads to the third point here. Decide if you're looking for behavior or feedback. Behavior means understanding how they do things. Feedback is getting intel right on a product or offering. And they suggest here, don't mix the two. You want to keep the usability test, user test, focused on ways they've tried to solve their problems in the past. And really, if you're trying to get the empathy marketing aspect of this, you really want to focus on their behavior or their feelings. Yeah, that's interesting. The fourth one, embrace negative feedback. Again, don't don't get defensive. I, I know that's hard to do. Yeah, I mentioned the billing piece earlier on the website scenario. And that was one that when I first started seeing that feedback come in, I was like, wait, what are you kidding? It's just right here. But of course, you know, we built the website. I knew exactly where it was. And so uh, embrace that negative feedback. So don't go in with a lot of preconceived stuff. Don't try to talk them out of their feelings, I guess, <laughs> you know, or, or convince them they're wrong. You know, don't lead the witness, if you will. So embrace that negative feedback. When I was an observer of a usability test, when I was behind a two-way mirror, I was observing this. Now, that felt a little bit weird to be behind a two-way mirror. But I, when the person couldn't find the phone number of that hospital, I was like, I almost stood up and said, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like I wanted to react. You can't do that. You, you got to make sure, and that leads to point number five, that they feel open to giving you that negative feedback. Because at the start of the conversation, you want to you want to say, I want you to be brutally honest. And maybe your feedback is 100% confidential. Maybe indicate to them, we're actually using this feedback to help improve the product, to help improve what we're trying to build. The sixth piece here is uh, to ask open-ended questions. Uh, again, I, I think we know this, but it's just it's worth, uh, not that there's not ever a reason to have a yes-no question, but again, instead of saying, do you have a physician, you want to ask, you know, what types of physicians have you been to see in the last year or what reasons have, have sent you to see a physician? Get them talking and, and get more feedback versus just yes-no. This is where you can really prompt them to get into their feelings too, right? How did that experience make you feel? Very good open-ended question and just letting them go and you, you pay attention, observe. The other thing by letting them go and, and, and letting them provide their feedback is point number seven, listen without interrupting or influencing. And I know it's very hard for us to do that. Many times we're the ones sitting closest to the brand, but really you want to ask your questions in a very neutral way. 
don't feel the need to fill the silence. I've, I've tried to do that too, right? Where you keep the conversation going, give them the opportunity to kind of find the voice behind their opinions or their feedback. We don't do a good job with this. And again, this is a quick plug for, for Bobby Ratu. Uh, he does the, the podcast intersection here on the network and, uh, one of his most recent episodes, actually, it's been a couple of three back now, I guess. But he talks about the power of the of the pregnant pause, and so just jumping in immediately and allowing people to, you know, even unpack things on their own that maybe you wouldn't even have gotten to, you wouldn't known how to ask the question. Number eight, uh, to go deep. So if you if you find kind of an interesting thread continue down that track to tell me more or something they say may prompt a question. And, you know, don't be afraid to kind of go down that, down that path. It might lead you totally down a different direction, but uncovering something else that might be a big correlated frustration or, or a correlated concern with the design that you're building. So yeah, definitely go deep. The other thing too is after you're done with sort of the testing, the ninth point says to ask for intros to more people who could help. Chances are this person might know other people that are feeling the same way. They, if they might know other, you know, other people that would be maybe part of the conversation. This you have to be cautious of, right? Because you want to you want to make sure that you're selecting the right people for your usability study. That's why a lot of times when I start to think about usability studies, I look after like patient advisory councils, people that are users of our health system that are motivated to provide willing feedback. And then finally. Write up the notes immediately. Don't let yourself get too far from these conversations that you lose some color or context or forget who said what or which interview that that nugget came from or whatever. And they talk here about interviewing a certain amount of people. I think the point being is, you know, make sure you have a good sample size. Obviously, the smaller the sample size, the more likely you're going to have wildly different uh, pieces of feedback or a particular piece of feedback may skew the results, uh, obviously. And so make sure you've got a good good sample size and, and that you're capturing uh, all that information immediately so it's uh, why, why it's fresh in your mind. I mentioned that there's a deeper resource from a company called Moose the Needle that did a boot camp around asking empathy questions. And I have to tell you, it is a really, really good resource. If you're listening in and you're interested more in this topic, go to the article about different things like the types of questions, how to structure questions, how to remove bias from your questions. It's really powerful. And I would say that that's a really good resource to have. So Reed, we've talked a lot about empathy, empathy mapping, empathic marketing. In the interview that we're going to listen to uh, in just a moment here, Justin Wartel from Monocle, he described a recent study that they have done that where they actually talked to more than 18,000 consumers in 33 markets and 600 plus healthcare professionals on branding, branding in healthcare specifically. And they released it as the volume two of their humanizing brand experience study on consumer mindset, on deconstructing how choices are made in healthcare, how to really equip when you're doing branding work or any kind of marketing work within your organization to create better experiences. And spoiler alert, they do talk about empathy. Why don't we take a pause and then uh, when we come back, we'll listen to Justin and the interview I had with him a couple of weeks ago about this study.
Okay, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today, I'm delighted to talk to someone who I has been a big fan of some of the work that you've been doing online. I've read a number of your blog posts. And then you today just reminded me that you and I got to know each other many years ago. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let me introduce to the show, Justin Wartrell. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Justin, for people listening in that may not know you, can you give them a little brief background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I am one of the principals here at Monagle. We are a brand experience agency based in Denver, Colorado, but also with an office in New York City as well. Got about 145 people, and we focus on all aspects of brand experience. A lot of work in healthcare, but also a lot of work outside of it as well. I think what we found is that healthcare leaders appreciate the perspective we bring from doing work in other industries like retail, consumer packaged goods, financial services, et cetera. And absolutely. And we're going to talk about sort of that outside perspective bringing into branding in the topic we're going to get into. But where you and I got to know each other was many years ago, you actually interviewed me as a stakeholder when we were, you were doing some rebranding work at a health system worked out in New York, right? Yeah, we met it was probably nearly nearly seven years ago now mm-hmm. as we were kicking off the rebrand work that we led for the now Northwell Health, mm-hmm. an organization that represents now more than 25 hospitals across the region and so wow. a gigantic undertaking. And we were right at the beginning of that project together, uh, really understanding stakeholder perspectives, yours included, as well as other leaders across the organization so we could frame out that inside-out point of view around what the brand could potentially stand for. When you talk about branding work, when you mention inside-out perspective, I think that's a big part of it. But there's sort of that outside-in perspective as well. And I think that kind of leads really nicely to the topic that we're, t- we're going to talk about today, which is about the intersection of branding and really consumerism and consumer experience. I think what, what we found when you think about the creation of brands in today's world we have to have the orientation to broader notions of consumer experience and, and consumerism, as, as you were describing. That does require us to take an outside-in view to balance the inside-out one. And that's sometimes hard for healthcare leaders to think about, is, is that it's not all about what we want to accomplish. It's not all about that inside-out perspective. We have to be much more um, oriented to the needs of those stakeholders outside of our organization, the consumers that we serve, how they knit together from a culture perspective into communities and networks and how those communities and networks then interact with the various touch points of our experience, whether it's a hospital visit or more frequently an urgent care or a telehealth visit or a visit to their local primary care physician. To state that it's sometimes difficult for health systems to grasp that is probably an understatement, quite frankly, in my experience, <laughs> right? We, we tend to very much in the hollowed halls of our health systems really talk a lot about like how our system is structured, it's sophisticated, et cetera. And, you know, me from a, from a digital perspective, I often characterize that as um, just because we have an org chart doesn't mean our digital properties should follow that org chart. That's not how people interact with brands. In your experience at Monocle with both health systems and other brands, as you mentioned, what are some of the trends you're seeing around consumer experience and branding and how they're starting to intersect? It starts with reorienting your perspective entirely. And I think one, one of the things that we're most thrilled about that we're able to have more conversations about that we're able to help change from a, from a project and an experience management perspective is the broadening of the perspective from patient experience to one of brand experience or consumer Mm -hmm. experience. 
organizations use a lot of different phrases to describe it, but I think we, we come from a history of defining things based on what happens when people are inside our four walls. And if you think about how we all as human beings interact with brands, we're influenced by whether it's messaging or communications from our peers or family members or questions that we're posing or research that we're doing. We're influenced long before we walk through those doors, so to speak, um, and also are influenced long after. And so I think one of the one of the biggest trends that is on our minds is this expansion of definition from patient experience as often a, a nurse-led, clinically care-focused discipline to more of a consumer experience perspective that considers what happens with our brand before somebody walks through the door while they're with us, and then also once they've once they've left, um, and then can advocate on our behalf or not on our behalf, depending on the experience we delivered. And that advocating that you're talking about really in the digital era has been really put on steroids because of all the reviews and the, you know, the ways that people can actually talk about your brand online. As you talk about that overall experience, digital plays a big role in all of this. In fact, I just recently saw Google present and Google said that many times the brand begins at that first Google search online. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, we found in the research that we do under the banner of our humanizing brand experience effort, which is an annual study that, that we put out, we're finding that more and more people are more proactively seeking out information, not only about issues or disease states, so to speak, but also about what other people's experiences have been with organizations. And that's predominantly through those digital channels. The other one that's really interesting from our mm -hmm. perspective is that we're finding a number of digital touch points after the fact are also having a huge influence on advocacy and future behavior. So to get more specific, we've got people who after an experience, you know, we've, we as a health system or, or a healthcare provider have solved their problem, but they come back and interact with us from an online billing experience perspective. It's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly unclear. There are a number of surprises and that touch point, which in this case happens to be a digital touch point, mm -hmm. that is so frustrating to them. It's going to taint the perspective of the entire experience that they've had up to that point. So when you think about it, we, we've got to expand and reprioritize our areas of focus from the ones that we've historically controlled to the ones that we want to both control and influence, uh, whether they're digital, physical, or the other ones that are important are those human touch points, those interpersonal touch points when it comes to you know, a, a phone call or that welcome when you walk through the door or when you pick up the phone and answer a call from a, a concerned patient or somebody with a, a billing question or a billing topic. Recently, Monocle released the Humanizing Brand Experience, second edition, I guess it's volume two. The study is, is actually a pretty robust one. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but would you be okay if we uh, kind of dig into a couple of the points from the study? Absolutely. Let's do it. Tell us about that study itself. How did you start doing this? And, and you know, tell us a little bit more about the, the structure of, this, of the study. I come from the retail and consumer packaged goods mm -hmm. part of the world. And healthcare is relatively new to me. I don't know how long, Chris, I get to say that because I've been working <laughs> on healthcare brands now at Monaco for almost seven years. But I came relatively new to the healthcare world. And what I was surprised at is that some of the, the mindset, the nimbleness and flexibility, the orientation to trying new that was part and parcel of being in the retail and consumer packaged goods world 
was a mindset that was not as natural for healthcare leaders. So part of what drove our interest in bringing to life humanizing brand experience, which you're exactly right, we're in our, we just completed our second year and we're about to field our third year of the study. Talking to nearly 18,000 consumers last year, we'll be up over 25,000 consumers that we're engaging in, in the research in this upcoming iteration. It was really intended to provide a different perspective into what experience means. Again, to challenge some of those conventions that patient experience is about what happens within our four walls, but consumer experience is much broader. I think very natural in the retail world is this understanding that every decision we make around brands is driven by some element of functional and emotional influence. And so we wanted to really deconstruct the elements of that functional experience and the elements of the emotional experience and understand when we, when we think about people making decisions in healthcare, which they're doing more and more, uh, consumers have more and more control over their healthcare experience as evidenced by uh, what you were describing from a research perspective or some of the things that, that we're trying to, that people are trying to do from a, you know, how they walk in the door informed and wanting to, you know, push a certain diagnosis or how they try to control the experience afterwards. Um, we wanted to understand what what are the the elements that are driving that choice and that behavior, and that really guided how we started around this study. We've continued to grow the footprint, the brands that are included, as well as the attributes we're measuring. Last year, we added attributes, uh, further deconstructing reputation, and we dug into some new experience dimensions. In the upcoming study, we've got uh, a whole portfolio of new touch points that we're prioritizing, as well as a variety of sensory factors that we're seeing, at least in some other categories, are influencing choice and behavior uh, at a much higher rate. We want to see how they play out from a healthcare decision-making standpoint. In this summary article that you wrote, you actually highlighted some of the, the key takeaways from this, this year's study. Let's talk about those. Um, what's, what's one of the first things that you found? One of the things that emerged very clearly is this notion of brand change and experience change starting from the inside out. It was driven as much by some additional exploration that we had done actually with medical professionals, along with talking to those tens of thousands of consumers. We also talked to 650 medical professionals from across the country of all levels and really exploring what it means to deliver experience from their perspective. I think whether we're talking about using digital or physical touch points, those employees, those staff members are often the most distilled manifestations of what our brand is all about and what our experience really is for people. And when we talked to those folks, there was an incredible level of frustration, whether it's operational pressures uh, related to understaffing and efficiencies or a lack of understanding of uh, what their organization was all about and prioritizing or the inability to connect what they were doing to a bigger purpose. And it really cements the importance of thinking about brand and experience through the lens of the internal stakeholders first. How do we help to get people engaged and excited about experience in order for them to be those ambassadors of change and positive energy that we know they can be in influencing patients, 
families and even the communities with whom they interact with. Yeah, I think that's an important insight there because um, having worked in health systems for so long, you can often lose sight of that if you're not being reinforced of the fact of your brand purpose, your brand mission is what you're all working towards. I think oftentimes they, those folks often feel forgotten as well. So frequently when working on experience projects, and, and I'm sure that your listeners can have been through this experience before, but you start to work on brand and experience related projects or work streams, and it becomes all about what we're doing out in the world. And I think what we've found is the most successful uh, efforts to change brand and to change mm-hmm. the culture of experience are ones where organizations don't uh, leap to solutions that are focused on the outside world and instead take the time to bring those internal stakeholders along to engage them to understand how they want to be informed, how they want to be a part of that change management process, and then having the patience to really focus on those folks before then introducing that, that experience or any changes to the experience to the outside world. What's another finding that you, you saw in the study this year? For us, we spend a lot of time talking to organizations about systemness, mm-hmm. and I think whether you're you're describing uh, the interaction of a portfolio of digital systems, or we're thinking about how we bring hospital enterprises together, or how we think about even bringing physician practices into into broader systems, what we also saw is that there continue to be frustrations um, and impediments to really owning systemness. We're seeing a continued evolution in consumers' understanding of it Mm -hmm. and expectations of what it should deliver. I mean, when you think about about us, probably before 9 a.m. this morning, we interacted with 10 different systems, whether you think about checking your Gmail, um, maybe you watched a a Netflix show while you were working Mm -hmm. out this morning, Um, And then not to mention all of the smart appliances that are interacting with one another in your home, we have an expectation of what systemness means and how systems can work together. Yet as an industry, we talk a lot about health systems, but we don't necessarily act like it. Mm. And I think one one of the takeaways or the calls to action for health systems is you can't let some of these operational impediments and historical legacy issues get in the way of delivering some of these system benefits, whether this is the coordination of care, saving people time and energy, whatever you want your definition of systemness to be, uh, you got to stop talking about it and just using the words if you don't have some of that uh, realistic delivery or operational reality to back it up. So whenever you use the word systemness, me having spent, you know, over 10 years in this space, I kind of shudder a little bit because that really has become a negative word for us. And oftentimes because it reflects what you're talking about is that it's not, we're not operating as a system. We're almost operating as sort of a confederacy. Having health systems kind of embrace the system aspect of that, I think it's notoriously difficult to do. Why are we so resistant to it? There's a level of inertia that seems to exist, this hesitancy toward action. I think there's that mindset that I'm sure you've heard a million times, which is, well, we've always done it that way. Yeah. I'm still amazed that, that as an industry, we use that, that phrase so frequently. Well, that's the, that's the way it's always been done. Hmm. Um, and I think you're, you're seeing organizations that are challenging that convention and having levels of success. We've got you know, brands in the Northeast, a brand here locally in Denver, uh, a couple of brands on the West Coast that, that are really challenging that expectation. 
mm-hmm. other part is the legacy barriers that exist between brand and experience teams mm-hmm. and the other disciplines across the organization. I think that we historically have not had to work together. One of the biggest changes that we've seen in how we approach projects from a team and structure standpoint on the client side mm-hmm. is that it's not just a, a brand or marketing person sitting across the table. Uh, it's his or her counterpart from HR and often uh, his or her counterpart from operations. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at brand and experience projects through that multidisciplinary lens, which allows us to make change happen on a much bigger field. Then again, we still have, have folks that say, no, I'm, I'm not interested in taking that on. That challenge mm-hmm. is too big. Um, or that's somebody else's department. I think those are some of the things that really, really get in the way. Because we don't have as much permission as we used to. We, we've used this phrase a lot. You know, People in healthcare talk about how consumerization is, is in progress or consumerization is happening. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, one of the observations from our perspective is it, it, it already happened. It's passed. It's done. Mm-hmm. At this stage now, it's how can we take action within that, that context? We can't wait any longer. Um, people have been retrained by other industries, and we don't have that leeway that we historically have had in, in order to, to make promises that we can't support. Another takeaway that you highlighted is, um, and it's interesting, I'd love to, uh, let's dig into this a little bit. You said to appeal to emotions. Tell me about that. What does that mean? If you think about our decision-making outside of healthcare and think about it in in anything that we do, Mm -hmm. we're always balanced by some level of of functional and emotional. And there are some places where we make very functional decisions. If you go and um, you have to purchase a gallon of milk, uh, you're probably in the back of a grocery store and you're mm-hmm. picking the option that's there without too much thought to the emotional appeal of said brand. It's probably price and format is what mm-hmm. you're choosing. At the other end of the spectrum, there are things we buy that are uh, or things we choose that are just full and rich with emotion. And one of our observations uh, supported by research here in our humanizing brand experience work is that functional, so things like quality and convenience that have been bread and butter elements of healthcare engagement and, and experience creation, um, those are, are not only deteriorating in their overall importance, they're now just about equal to all of those emotional factors, things like how we make people feel special, how we connect to their needs, how we help them to feel in control. Mm-hmm. So this whole notion of appealing to emotions is really to challenge some of our history within the healthcare industry where our tendency has been to focus on the functional and to focus on the things that are a little bit easier for us to prove, even though as a category, it's such an emotionally rich category. I mean, so often we're helping people through their most challenging emotional hardships and and trying times, yet uh, as brands and in the experiences we've created, we've struggled to harness that emotion Mm-hmm. So appealing to emotion is all about really uh, trying to strike a stronger balance between function and emotion. Chris, you might be surprised. We still have organizations that ask the question, well, we'll just build our story around quality. Isn't that enough? And the answer is no, it's not. You can't be quality alone because your quality and their quality and someone else's quality, nobody knows the difference. No- normal human beings don't know the difference between 
these uh, minor nuances between your your performance scores and somebody else's. But if you can appeal to somebody's emotion at a deeper level, mm-hmm. you can make a connection that's much more long lasting. In the study itself, you used an interesting choice of words that kind of resonated with me. You, you call it value. I think the value story is one that often gets uh, misunderstood and sometimes misused because mm-hmm. the whole notion of value is one that's growing in importance on the transactional or financial side. You know, mm-hmm. People have an expectation that we as an industry are delivering some level of financial value back to people. And you'll see a lot of organizations spending time on price transparency related topics to address that. But it's the emotional value that gets kind of tied into transactional value and then lost in that mix. Um, people have a hunger for, I think we, in this year's study, 80% of people had an, or 81% of people had an openness to building an emotional connection with their healthcare brand. Wow. Now that, that's, that's permission. Um, yeah. It's, it's un, unbridled permission, <laughs> but we've got to find a way to transition uh, our historical orientation of the functional into a way that connects with people in a way that they're giving us permission to do. Another element that we found really interesting is this whole notion of how we define our competitive set, Mm. how we draw our field of play relative to the competition. I think what's really interesting for us is that healthcare is such a um, a locally delivered experience, but we're seeing a lot of pressure from brands that don't think of themselves as local. So just as as an aside, we put a couple of brands into the mix and evaluated them. And among those brands, uh, brands like Parsley Health and Forward, those brands, if we were to have ranked them uh, like we ranked all the other healthcare brands, they would have been at the top of our study. They would have been the strongest performing brands, and most of them have, have emerged within the last five years. So you start to think about this, the level of disruptor brands that are happening and the importance for us to step out of our traditionally defined competitive set and start to think about who's going to eat our lunch uh, in three years' time. Right. You think about the CVS health hubs of the world and them opening, uh, I think it's 1,500 locations uh, in the next three years, and the unparalleled access from a trusted brand that builds that local health-specific emotional connection with people. So those sorts of brands that are going to continue to put pressure on us, and we're, we want to implore healthcare brands to think a little bit more broadly about who their competitors are and to incorporate them into the measurement they're doing, the mystery shopping they're doing, the assessment of their experience mm-hmm. uh, in order to be inspired and to potentially think differently. I do think, though, it, it takes just a little step. It, it's just about those tiny wins that somebody can take on um, in order to keep some of those competitor brands front of mind. There are little things that can be done to at least provoke a little bit of thinking differently. And, and it takes a few of those smaller actions in order to see some bigger change happen. Well, this has been really, really informative and, and, and educational. I really just love talking to you and definitely want to have you back on. If people listening in want to know a little bit more about you online, what's the best way for them to, uh, to find you? We'd love for people to connect with us from a Monaco perspective um, through LinkedIn and through our content channels on monogle.com. You can really get in touch with anyone as well as get access to our humanizing brand experience report. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. And Justin, thank you so much for all your thoughts and insights today. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
I did as well. Thank you so much, Chris, for the opportunity to join you today. Again, special thanks to uh, Justin for coming on, sharing some knowledge, and uh, appreciate the insights there. Being on the show, this has been uh, this has been kind of a cool and very interesting. Again, kind of spurred off of uh, Chris's Mayo Clinic presentation. Good stuff. So we've got a couple of exciting uh, episodes coming soon. This is 149, of course. Next week, December the 18th, is our best of show, the best of 2019, which is episode number 150. We'll get into you know some of the kind of interesting stats about the show, about the network, uh, things like that, and, and kind of relive uh, some of the best moments of the year. Uh, episode 151 is going to be a great episode. Tune in for that. Something a little bit different than what we've uh, talked about to this point. I won't spoil that one. And then our first one of the new year, which is actually on the first day of the new year, January the 1st, is our annual award show. And so this is what you know we've been encouraging you to uh, go out and vote. We've put up a couple of polls on LinkedIn uh, we've actually got the full survey. You can vote on things like uh, your favorite show, favorite guests, best cold open, give us feedback, all that kind of fun stuff. So it's a bit.ly link, touchpoint, all lowercase, touchpoint2019, touchpoint2019, all lowercase, bit.ly link. It won't take uh, but just a couple of minutes. There's also on LinkedIn, we've been circulating a poll too. That's a little bit different, but uh, definitely check out the search for Touchpoint Media. Those are three separate words, Touchpoint Media on LinkedIn, and you can find the survey there as well. So we'll be kind of combining votes from kind of all over the place. That, that should be a lot of fun, including our annual uh, Fan of the Year award. South by Southwest is coming up uh, in March. And so let us know if you're going to be there. And touchpoint.health is the website, TPS report, go sign up for that. And uh, let's do a couple of reviews before we get out of here. Well, Reed, I'm going to go first. Uh, It is the holiday season. And you know what the holiday season means to me? It means those really creepy stop action animated Christmas shows. You know, like uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. And of course, the very popular Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. To me, that's a reminder of childhood. And my wife always had a visceral negative reaction to that show. She never really liked it. She said she found (laughs) it to be really annoying. And so it was just on this last weekend. And I know why she doesn't like it. And it's because Santa is quite a jerk in the show. Just like very, very temperamental. When Rudolph was found out to have a red nose, he actually ripped into his <laughs> dad, Donner, shaming him for having a red nosed child, right? So much so that I went out to YouTube and sure enough, someone compilated it all together. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a great YouTube video that says, Santa is a jerk in Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And it highlights the six or seven times when Santa was a jerk in that show. That's going to be my recommendation. Kind of a positive Rudolph, but also the negative about you really have to show this, see this video on YouTube about Santa being a jerk nice. in the show. I'm going to go non-Christmas related. I probably should start coming up with some Christmas related uh, recommendations. But in any case, it's another podcast, uh, NPR, called Ask Me Another. And so it's uh, NPR uh, and then WNYC Studios called Ask Me Another. It's a podcast. It's packed with trivia, comedy, celebrity guests, etc. They say Ask Me Another is like an amusement park for your brain. 
they also end it with, uh, and barely anyone throws up in a trash can. So it's kind of a fun show to listen to. It's kind of like a variety show, an audio variety show. So they have uh, a lot of musicians will come on. They sing a little bit. They ask them questions. Then then they pull people out of the crowd because uh, a lot of these are live. Maybe all of them are live. Um, and ask them questions uh, and things like that. And they get to you know, win prizes. Nice. Ask me another is from WNYC uh, and NPR. Excellent. Excellent. I do listen to that show and it is quite fun. Well, very cool. This has been another great, uh, great edition, great episode. And we're right up to the 150 mark. So thanks for tuning in for episode 149. Be sure to come back next week. It'll be a fun episode. It's always one of maybe my most fun of the year to do, but we'll have uh, a lot of cool stuff planned for next week. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you then. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.